The nation of Finland is well known for its picturesque beauty, the colourful glow of the northern lights, and of course, its booming tourist industry. It is the home of Lapland and Santa Claus, after all. It is also famous for being one of the happiest countries in the world. But this beautiful Nordic country is not without its fair share of dark and disturbing crime. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we are going to look at just two of Finland's most notorious cold cases. Suzanne Lindholm Suzanne Lindholm was born on December 9th, 1950. At the time of her death in 1976, she was 25 years old and working at the service desk for Finnair at Helsinki Airport in Finland. On Saturday, August 7th, after finishing work, Suzanne decided to go out on the town and party. She invited several of her work friends and colleagues, but all of them declined to go with her. So she called one of her male friends who came and picked her up and gave her a ride to Western Helsinki. It was here in Haga that Suzanne met with her sister Camilla. The pair hung out at a hotel bar. By this time, it was after 10 p.m. After finishing up at the hotel, Suzanne and her sister went to a club in central Helsinki. While having fun and drinks with Camilla, Suzanne met a Norwegian man who has never been publicly named. He was there on a business trip and the couple hid it off immediately. Camilla decided to go home at around 1.20 a.m., catching the last bus back home. But Suzanne and her new friend left together to visit the bar in the Hotel Hesperia. Reportedly, the couple visited the unidentified man's hotel room where they shared a nightcap. At around 3 a.m., however, Suzanne decided she was ready to go home as she had work again the next day. She declined to allow the man to escort her home, but the pair exchanged phone numbers and arranged to meet the following day. Suzanne was last seen outside of the hotel, looking around between 3 and 3.10 a.m. Later, police inquiries discovered that she had likely walked along Manahay Minty, the street where the hotel was located, and they decided that she had not chosen to hitchhike. Since the last bus home was the one on which her sister had boarded at 1.20 a.m., there was no public transport available for Suzanne to get home. She reportedly carried no cash on her either, and investigators failed to find any taxi driver who admitted to driving her home. Because of this, Suzanne's last movements are unknown to law enforcement. Hotel Hesperia was around 2.5 miles away from Suzanne's home, which she shared with her siblings and her parents. The family had lived in the home in Kapula since 1960. The building had a basement which was largely used to store bikes, and it was here, while retrieving a tire pump for his own bicycle, that a neighbor found Suzanne's body on August 8th at 1.15 p.m. Suzanne's end had been a violent one. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with her work scarf. Skin found beneath her fingernails, among other evidence, showed that the 25-year-old had fought back viciously, 
but that she had ultimately been overpowered. Her clothes were dishevelled, and there were mixed reports about items left with Suzanne's body. Some claimed that a ski pole and a child's plastic shovel were placed over the corpse, while a Finnish magazine reported that her body had been covered with her jacket. Immediately, authorities suspected that the crime was sexually motivated. While canvassing the neighbours, they uncovered a potentially important piece of information. A neighbour reported hearing crying at around four o'clock in the morning, but claimed that they thought nothing of it and went back to sleep. The landlord of the building had been away for several days, so knew nothing of what happened, while the caretaker reported hearing nothing unusual. Police believe Suzanne met her end within an hour of leaving the hotel, between 3 and 4 a.m. As police retraced Suzanne's steps from the night before, they were perplexed at how she had gotten home. According to them, it was simply too long a walk for her to get home alone in the dark. The area in which Suzanne lived was poorly lit and quiet in 1976 and had several small, dense forests nearby. They wondered if she had accepted a ride with her killer or if he had barged into the building later on when she arrived at home. Her sister, Camilla, disputes the idea that she got into a car with a stranger, claiming that just months prior to her passing, Suzanne had told Camilla that she would never do such a thing. During the course of their investigation, the police interviewed people Suzanne had met with while out the night before and her neighbors. They had a small suspect list, including a taxi driver and the Norwegian man Suzanne had met that night, but both had solid alibis and were eventually ruled out of the investigation. Hundreds of interviews were conducted and police searched for and stayed alert for signs of any predators roaming near the Hesperian Hotel. The case received considerable media attention, and when the information about the skin under Suzanne's fingernails was released, law enforcement was flooded with tips regarding people with scars, most of which led nowhere and actually slowed the investigation down. There was, however, a man with scratches on his face who was detained for questioning by police, but little information is available on him and he was ultimately released. Although law enforcement has never been able to establish Suzanne's exact route back home, they decided that since nobody had seen her or picked her up, she was likely taken home in a car, perhaps by someone she knew. Her family think it's unlikely that she walked home alone because she preferred not to draw attention on herself, and she would probably have felt safer on public transport or with someone she knew. As a result, police suggest several theories, that she was followed home and surprised by her attacker, or that her attacker had driven her home, or that they both met by the building door. They also added that they believed the perpetrator was young and in good shape in 1976, and that the execution was not premeditated. They profiled the culprit as someone who was abnormal, lonely, mentally disturbed, someone who avoided relationships of any kind, and someone who displayed sexually problematic behavior. One clue that has many scratching their heads is that when Suzanne's body was found, it was noted that she had two gold rings which were missing. For a short while, authorities wondered if robbery had been the motive all along, but this was quickly dismissed. Online sleuths have proposed the idea that she attempted to use the rings for her cab fare, since she had no money, whilst others have speculated that the killer took them as a trophy. 
Police and Suzanne's parents believe that she was forced into the basement that night. Her parents noted that if their daughter had brought someone home, she would take them to her room. Others who knew her said she was easily annoyed and did not tolerate harassment. They believe that if it was not consensual, Suzanne would have kicked up a fuss and let everyone know. There were no signs of forced entry to the basement and Suzanne's keys were found in her pocket, suggesting that she had possibly let the perpetrator into the cellar with her. The case has been reinvestigated numerous times in recent years, including 2004 and 2014. In 2014, a TV report garnered new clues, but the two suspects in the case had watertight alibis. Although Suzanne's case has grown cold in recent years, law enforcement had numerous theories about her slaying in the 70s and 80s. Police thought that there may have been an unidentified serial killer stalking the streets of Helsinki in the 80s when a 41-year-old woman turned up dead in 1980 and a 42-year-old met the same fate a year later in 1981. Both of these women's cases were similar to Suzanne's. They had been raped and executed in their apartment building's basement, and both had been out drinking and partying before heading home. In 1995, the chief investigator said that the suspected perpetrator's name was known to the police, but that there wasn't enough evidence to arrest and charge him. Then in 1982, a bus driver living in Espo was investigated. Yelo Atu Sepanen raped and murdered an 18-year-old woman in Haga, five months after the last basement victim was found. He and his victim had encountered each other on their way home, and he had taken trophies from her. He claimed he was motivated by his desire to take revenge on women who had ditched him. It was noted that his marriage ended shortly before Suzanne met her demise. While Sepanen was suspected of being involved in Suzanne's case, he was never convicted. In 1979, for a brief time, Suzanne's case was thought to be linked to that of a travel agent whom the media claimed was a friend of the 25-year-olds. Helena Corlin, 28, had gone missing and was later located, having been strangled and dismembered by a sex offender named Carl Eric Djorkovist. However, the possible connection between these two tragic cases was later abandoned. Today, 44 years later, the disturbing case of Suzanne Lindholm remains unsolved. Auli Kiliki Sari. Auli Kiliki Sari was born on December 6, 1935, in Isoyoki, and she was the youngest of six children. On the day she went missing in 1953, she was just 17 years old. Her case is one of the most infamous and longest running in Finland's history. On Sunday, May 17th, 1953, Kiliki cycled eight miles to her church. Extremely religious, Kiliki worked in the administrative office of her parish. On this particular day, when the 17-year-old returned home, she told her parents she felt tired and retired to her room for a rest. According to her parents, this was unusual behavior, but they didn't think too much of it. Later that night, at around 6 p.m., Kiliki set off on her bike again. This time, she was going to an evening prayer meeting. According to friends, Kiliki had been anxious and nervous all day. It's unknown what exactly had frightened her, but the teenager said she felt uneasy about traveling home alone at that time of night. 
On her return journey, Kiliki traveled partway with a friend, but the pair separated at the crossroads near a milk processing plant. This was around 10.30 p.m. A witness saw Kiliki at around 10.40 p.m., roughly a mile past the crossroads, where she and her friend split from one another. This is the last known sighting of the 17-year-old alive. Back at home, Kiliki's parents did not think anything of the fact that she hadn't returned. She often went to stay with friends, so they assumed that this was the case. However, after several days had passed on May 20th, police organized a search party for the missing teenager. 30 locals participated in the search, but they found no trace of Kiliki or even her bike. Word quickly began to spread about her disappearance, and the following day, the witness who saw her on May 17th came forward. On May 21st, a specialist detective from Vasa was brought in to handle the investigation. The search for the 17-year-old was widened to include marshy areas and forest land, with over a hundred people volunteering to help the search. The following day, May 22nd, a farmer and his son, who were out transporting milk on the same road on which Kiliki was last seen, saw some odd clues. They saw bike tracks, footprints, car tracks, and even some shattered glass. It appeared to the pair as if there had been a struggle. While they alerted police as quickly as possible, by the time authorities arrived at the scene, much of the evidence had been disturbed or destroyed by other traffic on the road. There was no trace of the shattered glass either. In the initial weeks following Kiliki's disappearance, the case was far from cold. Just a week after the 17-year-old went missing, several witnesses came forward to report a cream-colored car which had been driving along the road Kiliki had used to get home, the same one on which she was last seen. One 12-year-old eyewitness told law enforcement that they'd seen a blonde man driving the car with a bike in the trunk on the night of May 17th. They added that there were two other men in the car, one of average build, the other one large. The car was driving fast with the lights off, despite the fact that it was late at night. This same car was seen by a mother and a daughter who were sitting on their porch in the village of Uro. The car drove past and had a tire sticking out of the trunk. Half an hour later, the car returned. However, despite the amount of eyewitnesses who recalled seeing the car, it could not be located, nor could the driver who was last seen inside of it. A month later, on July 22nd, two people who were out picking berries deep in a forest saw a bike tire in the nearby marshland. Upon closer inspection, they found a bike in the low water. Both tires had been deflated, likely in the hopes that it would sink more easily, and it was located hundreds of meters from the main road. There were traces of rust on the bike, but no other damage to it, prompting the belief that Kiliki had been purposefully abducted and had not perished in some sort of tragic accident. Due to the isolated location in which the bike was hidden, authorities determined that the perpetrator must have known the area well. When that same area had been searched in May, the water levels had been high, and although metal detectors were utilized, nothing was found. This led police to believe that the bike had been dumped there at a later time. However, the bike was quickly returned to Kiliki's parents and was not thoroughly examined, which possibly led to a loss of evidence. In October, the road on which Kiliki had last been seen was searched again. On October 10th, 
something finally was found. It was the 17-year-old shoe wrapped in her own scarf along with one sock belonging to a man. The items had been tied together with a black woolen thread and teeth marks observed on the scarf suggested to authorities that it had been used as a gag. The owner of the sock has never been identified. Like the bike, police believe that the shoe had been placed there later as it was not seen during initial searches. Just one day later, on October 11th, a searcher noticed a dry pine stick pointing out of a nearby tussock. The shoe had been found close by. The searcher pulled on the stick, noticing that the end was sharpened. A foul smell began to emanate from the area, and so the authorities were alerted. Underneath the grass and soil, about 200 meters from the road, was the body of the 17-year-old Kilikisari. The body was naked from the waist down, Kiliki's head wrapped up with her own coat. She had a torn bra and suffered a broken nose and cheekbone. Due to her body being badly decomposed, it couldn't be determined what other injuries she had suffered before her demise. However, her cause of death was established as blunt force trauma to the skull. The murder weapon was suspected to be a stick or stone. She had not been strangled or shot, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. Although authorities felt it was still possible, the crime was sexually motivated. The careful construction of the grave suggested to authorities that their offender possibly had some training as a military engineer. An expert at the University of Helsinki shed some light on the stick which had pierced Kiliki's body post-mortem. It had been cut from a tree in August at the earliest and had been sharpened with a type of Finnish knife named a puko by a left-handed person. However, there were no pine trees in the immediate area. Although authorities did some searching for the specific tree the stick came from, it was never located. On October 14th, Kiliki's other shoe turned up. However, it offered no further information. Her watch, red purse and hymn book, all three of which she was carrying when she went missing, have never been located either. Law enforcement was not short of leads in Kiliki's case. One of their prime suspects was a parish priest that remained a suspect for many years. He moved to Merikavia just weeks before the disappearance. The 17-year-old girl had written him a letter in the days prior to her vanishing in regards to some religious issues she was having. Despite this, the priest claimed that he didn't know Kiliki that well. However, this priest had a strong alibi. He had taken part in a party that evening, then spent time in the clergy house. The following morning at 8am, he had a class to attend. In total, the police couldn't account for around 20 minutes of his time, but he also didn't have a car or driver's license, so police felt that he simply couldn't have made it to the crime scene and back and had the time to attack Kiliki. Despite this, many online sleuths consider him a strong suspect even today, for several reasons. The priest was later found to have had improper relations during the war and was expelled from his African missionary work due to his relationship with a local nurse. He was known to flirt with young women and in 1955 had a relationship with an underage girl. He was later prosecuted for raping her and for getting engaged while being married to someone else. There are also rumors that he was either harassing or sexually abusing Kiliki but these whisperings appear to be unsubstantiated. 
The priest was mentioned in Kiliki's diary, but it's not publicly known what she said about him. It's noted that one of his relatives had a car that looked similar to the one connected with the case. A local man whose identity was hidden told a Finnish magazine that he believed the priest was responsible, but that he did not execute Kiliki by his own hand. Instead, he hired someone else to carry out the job. A German immigrant named Hans Asmann was also linked to the case, as well as being suspected of being involved in other murder cases. According to his wife, he and his driver were near the location at the time of the disappearance. He owned a light brown car, similar but not the same as the one seen by eyewitnesses at the time. In 1997, he allegedly confessed on his deathbed to a former police officer, claiming that he and his driver had accidentally hit Kiliki on the night of May 17th, and to avoid responsibility, they decided to stage the scene to make it look like a homicide. He said that the accident was unavoidable. Asman's wife added that when he returned home after that night, his shoes were wet and he was missing one sock. There were also dents in the car. She claimed that a few days later, her husband and driver went out again, but this time they took a shovel with them. Asman is also known to be left-handed, like the perpetrator in Kiliki's case. Another man suspected of being involved in the slaying of Kiliki was a 38-year-old ditch digger who lived in a one to two kilometer radius of the crime scene. He reportedly suffered several mental illnesses and spent much of his time in and out of mental hospitals. In 1940, the man was found guilty for a sexual offense. He was a known peeping Tom. Authorities believe that the man may have gotten help from his brother-in-law who had a criminal background, although his mother and sister claimed that the man was in bed from 7 p.m. after a day of heavy drinking. When interrogated by police, this man said that Kiliki was no longer alive and that her body would never be found. He later recounted these words, claiming that he had been misunderstood. He was questioned twice in relation to the case, with one of these times being in the mental hospital where the police were ordered by his doctor to stop as his behavior became increasingly erratic, strange, and confused. After this questioning, the man's brother-in-law, the man with the criminal history, moved away. Police suspected that the two could be responsible because they shared a working field just 50 meters from where the body was found. The shovel found there had been used to dig the grave. In 2002, investigators noted that they had strong, circumstantial evidence against the pair, who had both passed away by 1972, having never been charged in connection with Kiliki's case. Kaliki's funeral was held on October 25th, 1953. It was attended by 25,000 people. Despite the numerous leads and suspects in Kiliki's case, almost nine decades later, her brutal murder continues to go unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.